This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you back to the Bible line here after Easter. So glad to be here in the studio again. Hope you had a great Easter with your family and your church family at large, and I would welcome you this hour in your questions. If you're new to the Bible line, for the next hour, we take people's questions as they listen through WAGP.net as well as locally at 88.7 FM here on your dial. If you have a specific question as it relates to your life, your ministry, your church, maybe an interpretive issue that you're struggling with and you want to understand how to uh, interpret and apply the passage to your life. If we can be of help, all you need to do is you can call us locally at the 843 South Carolina Exchange, and that number again is 525-1859, 525-1859, or you can call us toll-free at the 877 number. It's just 877, the call letters, WAGP 980, or if you prefer, you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. We do give preference to live callers, so if you do call live, we'll put you on immediately. We have scores of questions that come in really from across the country and sometimes foreign countries, and we will do our best to get to them. If you do submit a question, uh, we will eventually email you and say, hey, your question was answered, you can listen to it at this link. You can also, during the week, call in if there's a burning issue. And if you call, again, the 843-525-1859 exchange, there's a line where you can leave an answer, I mean a question, in 30 seconds or less, and we will play it on the air. All right, with that said, let's go ahead and we'll begin, Rick. All right, Pastor. Yes, it is indeed good to be back. We've been off for a couple of weeks uh, in advance of uh, Easter, so We have a number of questions that have piled up, and uh, our first question comes from Norway, not uh, the one you're thinking of, but Norway, South Carolina. Do you know there's a Denmark, South Carolina? Yeah, and now a Norway. And there's a Switzerland, too. (laughs) That's right. One of our members lives in Switzerland. That is true, and they are faithful. They drive here every Sunday. Yes, they do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, this Marianne is in Norway, South Carolina, and she says, My family belongs to a small SBC-affiliated church in the Midlands. Several of us have been watching recent events in the SBC with concern, but our concerns are downplayed or dismissed by our pastor. Recently, he came to the deacons with a part-time job offer from the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and the deacons brought it to the church. While God can speak through any sermon, the ones we are hearing are shallow. I spent several years at Community Bible Church and learned the difference between the milk and the meat, and pastoral care of the congregation is practically non-existent at this church. Is it wrong of us to think this additional responsibility is not something he should pursue? That's the pastor, of course. 
Finding faithfully committed churches is getting so difficult. How would you encourage those of us out there in the middle of nowhere trying to do the right thing for our families and our church? All right. Well, that's a tough question. I want to be sensitive here because I don't have the pastor to defend himself. But let me just give some broad uh, parameters, some scriptural principles that I think would be useful. I will say that sometimes people call a pastor uh, to serve in their local assembly who's really not gifted to be a pastor. There are some men, say, who have the gift of mercy, and they would make a great associate pastor, say, of care, but their principal uh, ability is not in preaching and teaching. That's not to say that uh, a pastor, an elder of a church, shouldn't be able to teach sound doctrine. It certainly is a requirement for someone who serves in that office. There are certain lifestyle requirements, certain family requirements, and certain doctrinal issues that must be in place. I would step back and I would first ask, well, why does he want to seek another job? Is it because there's inadequate salary that the church is providing? Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And so, you know, we pay people when we go to a restaurant to prepare our food physically. We should pay those who prepare a spiritual meal. We should be prepared to pay them. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. I've turned here to first, <coughs> excuse me, Corinthians chapter, it's first Timothy chapter five. And here the apostle says the elders who rule well, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And then he adds, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So there are several, I think, points that we might want to underscore as you think through the issues that you're facing there in Norway, South Carolina. One is that church elders are to be honored. And honor includes not just the respect of the office, so you want to be very careful here. Uh, You want to show respect, but at the same time, honor also includes wages. He has just addressed the issue of uh, widows that should be shown honor. The context is financial remuneration. And those elders who serve the church, especially as teachers and preachers, so typically there's a pastor-teacher There may be other job responsibilities and elders, some paid, some not paid, but those who uh, are involved in the preaching and teaching of the Word should receive a double honor. And interestingly, he then adds the Scripture, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading the grain, and the worker deserves his wage, is worthy of his wages. Interestingly, by the way, Paul, when he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4, he then takes what Luke wrote, and calls it scripture. Of course, he's quoting the words of the Lord Jesus. The labor is worthy of his wages. But again, Paul saw the writings of Luke as scripture, and Luke's gospel had already been completed by this point. But just like it would be cruel to deny an animal food, especially one that does labor for you and helps provide for you, it would be cruel not to provide for him. And there is a sense in which it's cruel not to provide for a pastor. You know, some people say, well, he just needs to believe God. Let God take care of him. 
well, you may have that attitude, but it's certainly not a biblical perspective. Paul, likewise, in 1 Corinthians 9, you know, defends his apostleship against those who said he really wasn't an apostle. And he said, look, I have the credentials of an apostle. I've seen the risen Lord. He also argues in his letter to the Corinthians that he did in his second letter the miracles that only an apostle could do. So he said, I had every right to take a salary from you Corinthians. But then he said that in the preaching of the gospel, I may offer it without charge so as to not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. In other words, he said, though I could have charged you in this particular instance, I chose to serve as a tent maker and in the process provided, God provided uh, for my income and I didn't ask you for money. Why did he do that? Because he was establishing the church in Corinth and they were known for greedy teachers, not necessarily preachers of the gospel, but just men who would come in, who would teach their philosophy expect payment, and they thought, well, Paul, he's just another one, just a different spin, different message, and he all he's interested in is his, is our money. And, of course, uh, for that reason, Paul, though he had every right to draw a salary from them, uh, didn't. So with that broad theological perspective, let me get into the specifics of your question. I would ask if I were you know, a deacon of that church, and I'm assuming maybe that's the polity you have uh, since he is a Baptist, I would ask, are we paying him an adequate salary so that he can devote himself full-time to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God? And it is indeed hard work, and indeed it requires an incredible amount of time if it's going to be done right and properly. Why is it that he is seeking employment outside of the local assembly? Is it because you're not paying him enough? If that's the case, if he can't live on what you're paying him, and now it's kind of a bivocational ministry, in this case, bivocational working for Southern Baptists, then you need to ask, why is that? Uh, Why are we not paying him enough? Uh, Well, the church is so small, you say, and, you know, we can just gather enough money to give him a very small salary and to keep the lights on and the grass caught. Well, there needs to be some evaluation. Why is the church remaining small? Is there no outreach that's being done? I just was involved with a church in Maryland over the Easter season, and they had never really done anything uh, in terms of active, aggressive outreach, what we call our Easter Blitz. They did the first one. I gave them some ideas in terms of what they might do, sent them some of the material, Rick, that you put together for our church, and which they were extremely grateful for, and nine couples canvassed 1,800 homes, and they had a ton of visitors on Easter Sunday. And so then I said to them, look, the next step is what happens when these visitors come. I'm assuming you have a way in which to capture the name and which to do follow-up. If you don't, then you're missing a prime opportunity. My point in all of this is that healthy sheep should reproduce. Healthy sheep should reproduce. And part of the health of the sheep is that they are being fed. And so if you have a man in the pulpit who either doesn't really want to do that or isn't gifted to do that, then maybe you should let him go full-time with this opportunity with South Carolina Baptist and find another pastor altogether. If it's because you're not paying him enough, then you need to step back and ask why. 
Are there other things that we are paying into that aren't of prime importance? Your first goal should be to support the pastor and his family. Oh, well, we want to support these 10 missionaries over here. That should happen after you've met the needs of that pastor and his family so that he can give his life full-time to the teaching and preparation of the Word and prayer and to model in a leadership capacity evangelism. Now, I say all that to say that people write us constantly. They leave a church like Community Bible Church. They assume all churches are healthy like this, that you go and you actually need a Bible to listen to the sermon, that you're growing, and then they go to some other community, even large cities, and they can't find a single church. Well, that's not a reason not to go to church. One, you find a church that has the gospel. You find the healthiest church you can get involved in, and then you go and serve it. You pray for the pastor, and you do everything through your gifts and abilities to make it better. And, of course, at this time in human history, because God said these times would come, uh, you can supplement uh, maybe what you're getting in the pulpit of the church you're attending with some of the great teaching that's now available on the Internet. And so a lot of people even live stream our first service, and then they go to their 11 o'clock service. Some people are involved in Sunday school or service and then attend an 11 o'clock service, and then they come home, and by 3 p.m. our services are posted for someone to listen to. We're just one of many good ministries that you could use as a vitamin supplement to be growing in Christ. So you have no excuse for not growing But you do have an important question to ask and answer. Why does this pastor want to do what he's doing? Is it our fault? Can we reassess how we're paying him? Is he even called to be a Bible teacher? Is he gifted to be a Bible teacher? So these are some important questions that need to be asked and answered. This is a fantastic question. Uh, Marianne, is it from Norway, uh, has asked us this morning, Norway, South Carolina. Go ahead. All right. 843-525-1859. If you have a question and, uh, we had a letter that was sent to us from an anonymous listener in Bluffton. Um, they said on Sunday, you mentioned how after you presented the plan of salvation to someone, it moved them from 50 to 75% sure, which means they are still 100% lost. About two weeks ago, I had three men working at our house, and I got the sense that they were open to the Word, so I bought them lunch so I could take them to the red booklet. They followed along on every page, and we had good dialogue. They asked questions, and I gave examples of why works didn't help, etc. We got to the end, and they said they believed, and some said from childhood, but I didn't get the sense that they really got it. Later in the afternoon, just before they left, I popped the question, How many of y'all are 100% sure you're going to heaven? All three stumbled for the typical answers. God knows, try to be better, work harder. And I explained again about the works problem and reminded that the scripture we read and examples discussed. I told them to read the booklet again and pointed them to some resources in the Savannah area where they are from. My long question, trying to be short, is where do you go from here? When you've come through the when you've gone through the red booklet and they've appeared to have followed intently and had great conversation and then they miss it by a mile, what's the next step? 
God is sovereign, and it's not our job to save, so I'm not asking from a state of disappointment. I just pray the booklet burns a hole in their pocket and the next person waters the seed. I'm breaking down the game film, so to speak, and have, after hearing your comment in the message, I thought I might ask, as if I am not sure that I'll run into you that often. Well, this is a great question. And one, let me just thank this brother for being faithful to even attempt to share the gospel because I dare say probably 99% of evangelical Christians no longer share their faith. Oh, they might give a word of testimony. They might invite someone to church, all important things, all part of the seeding process. But at some point, someone needs to be walked through the plan of salvation. And you don't need to have the gift of evangelism to do it because it's a common responsibility we all share. And so let me thank you for attempting to do that. The more you share your faith, the better you will become at it. God will hone that skill. It's like learning to swim. You've got to jump in to get started. But as you jump in, you get better and better and better, hopefully, and you learn uh, partly from people who are gifted in this area, part of a pastor, teacher, and evangelist responsibility is, according to Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of service. So when you run into a situation like this, you're doing the right thing. You're asking questions. How can I be better? And then you pray the next time, Lord, make me sharper, make me more sensitive. My sense is, without dialoguing with you face-to-face, is that maybe you needed to ask a few more questions along the way. Like as you work through the quote-unquote red booklet, which if you're listening, this is the booklet I wrote, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? It's now in 12 languages. And, of course, English is the most spoken international language of the world, so if you have an English copy, you'll do fine even in most foreign countries of the world. But with that said, it's what I would call, what we used to call... Uh, when I went into the ministry over nearly 45 years ago, an Acts 17 presentation of the gospel. We would call an Acts 2 presentation of the gospel, one that was based on a certain base of knowledge. And so when I became a new Christian, uh, we were given a little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. That's an Acts 2 presentation of the gospel. Peter, when he stands up on the day of Pentecost, he's quoting scripture. Oh, remember what David said over here? He's appealing to the Jewish mind who had some knowledge of Scripture. Paul's approach in Acts 17 on Mars Hill is very different because he assumes they know very, very little. I had a couple in my office last week. They were in their 50s, and I asked them, I said, well, do you know um, when Adam ate the fruit, did he die? And I said, do you know whether or not Adam ate the fruit? And he said, no. He was in his 50s. Now, I expected that from someone 18, 19, or 20 years of age because that is a common response because we're meeting now a whole generation of people in their 20s who never went to church. 80% of the children in America were not in church this last Sunday. So the whole dynamic is uh, really changing rapidly. But then it was explained to me when I was told he has been in an Episcopal church his whole life. Well, you know, the Episcopal Church, for the most part, is apostate. They reject biblical doctrine. Uh, The Scripture is not authoritative. They've replaced liturgy for Bible teaching. And so I'm not surprised of his biblical ignorance. But this presentation, would you like to know God is your friend, is a large overview. But you might want to, at different times, ask some questions. So like when you get to the point 
where you're showing why good works cannot save. And you're underscoring two truths. Good works cannot save because, A, they can't remove the stain of sin, and it's all spelled out in the booklet. And so what we've done in this booklet is we've basically added commentary to equip someone to be able to share the gospel. Works can't save because they can't remove the stain of sin, and it's our iniquity that's created this separation between us and God that would keep us out of heaven. And number two, good works can't satisfy the penalty of sin. If you commit some heinous crime worthy of death and you plead with the court to do community service, it just won't dovetail because your crime deserves death. Well, the wages of sin is death. The soul who sins must die. So what you might want to do is you go through that diagram of the way the average person thinks that if they follow a particular moral code or philosophy of life or um, you might even at that point state the very works that they gave you in response to why God should let them into heaven. You might want to ask the diagnostic questions in the front end. It sounds like maybe you asked them after the fact. Um, So you would certainly want to ask them on the front end. You could say something like, you know, Fred, uh, imaginary name here. You know, I speak to a lot of people these days that are at different places in their journey with God, and I want to be sensitive to them. So hopefully I can at least encourage them because that's part of what God's called me to do as a Christian. And, you know, some people I meet go to church every week. Some rarely go. Some have read through the Bible cover to cover many times. Many that I speak with don't even own a Bible. So let me ask you a couple questions just to help me. You know, on a scale of zero to 100, how sure are you if you were to die, you'd go to heaven? Remember, 30% of unsaved people will say 100. And then the second question, if you were to die and God said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? If they can't give you an answer, you might say, well, what do you think God's requirements are to get into heaven? Or you might say, um, on what basis are you 100% sure if they gave 100%? A woman not long ago, it was in November, she said, I'm 500% sure. And I thought, oh, I'm going to get this great answer. You know, one of these born-again believers who have a deep-rooted assurance of salvation. I said, well, tell me why you're so why you're 500% sure, and she just went on to articulate her good works. She was 500% wrong. So you might want to ask when you're in the second point there, um, so, you know, Fred or Mike or Joe, you said that uh, if I do this, I do this, I do this, and you use the very words that they gave you as answers. Do you see why, what, based on what we've just read, that those answers won't make it? Say, look, you've got to get them lost before you can get them saved. And so sometimes, you know, we skip over point two and take the time needed to go through the specifics of why we need a Savior. You know, sometimes I'll ask children when they come into the office, I said, why is it that good works cannot save you? And maybe 60, 70% of them, I'm just kind of guessing here, Uh, would say, well, because you have to believe in Jesus. I said, well, that's true. You have to believe in Jesus. That's the solution. But why is it that good works can't get you into heaven? See, that's a different question. They can't get you into heaven because they can't solve the problem of your lack of holiness. And number two, they can't satisfy the problem of God's justice. And so when you're preaching the gospel, in many ways, you're preaching the attributes of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, and so on. And you're showing how God's love, how God's justice, how God's holiness 
all met up on the cross. Um, so another thing you might try to do is that when when you come to the end, and this is where it's very difficult for a lot of people, and I know this because uh, for over a decade I was involved in training Campus Crusade for Christ staff on how to share the gospel. And I would travel even to other parts of the country, and they would assemble you know, tons of staff. And uh, I guess because I had seen so many people come to Christ, they wanted to know what I was doing. And so one of the things I discovered was that very often when you got towards the end, a person said, well, why don't you take this booklet and go home and think about it? And that's not, I think, the best approach. You want to find out, hey, based on the answer you said, where do you think God would put you? Would he put you over here on the left side to use the red booklet here, at odds with God, unsaved, unforgiven? Or would he put you over here on the right side? Now, if they say on the left side, no, I would be over here. You can ask, well, where would you like to be? And they might say, well, uh, I'm not ready to go over there, in which case you would give an exhortation of why it's so critically important for them to make this decision and to understand that they don't have forever to make it, that God's Spirit won't always strive with them. They don't have the promise they'll be alive tomorrow. They don't know that Christ might not come back before this Bible line is over. And so there is an urgency. Today is the day of salvation. There's no tomorrow in God's vocabulary. It's today. Today is the day of salvation. Or you might say, well, which side represents your life? And they might say the one on the right. When they gave you the wrong answer, and then you can just gently say, well, you know, based on the answer that you gave, you said when I asked you why God should let you into heaven, that... Um, I'm a good person and I've been baptized and I, you know, I'm a decent dad based on your answer. And remember, we just read back here in Galatians 2.21, if someone could be saved by good works then Jesus never would have had to have died based on your answer, the Bible would put you here on the left. Do you see that? And again, you just gently ask them, do you see that? Sometimes a person will bristle up a little bit, like, who are you to judge? In which, again, you can gently respond and say, well, I'm not really judging you. I wouldn't be judging someone to say that murder is evil because the Bible says thou shall not murder. I wouldn't be judging someone to say that adultery is sinful because the Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And so that's a judgment God has made. I wouldn't be calling I wouldn't be judging a Mormon. We had four Mormons in church on Sunday at one point in the sermon, and they all got up in their suits and they left because <laughs> I said the only book God ever wrote and inspired was the Holy Scripture. He didn't inspire the Book of Mormon, the Quran, the Upanishads, the Vedas, some encyclical letter, some papal dogma. Uh, the only thing God ever wrote was the Holy Scripture. I had a man who wrote me from New York. I opened the letter this morning and he quoted me from some papal bull of um, a bull, not, I'm not using it in a uh, pejorative way, but that's what they called them. Um, nonetheless, this papal bull said that I was going to hell because I was a Catholic and left the Catholic Church, and he quoted word for word, and I was familiar with it, and that's what they teach. So again, those things aren't inspired. The Holy Scripture is inspired. So I wouldn't be judging the Mormon to say he's not a Christian because he 
you know, there was this thing on, you know, the Internet last week on some of the evangelical, uh, you know, um, discussion boards on, on Twitter. And I follow Twitter only because I follow my son. and I'm on it, but I don't really tweet very often. And I almost felt tempted to get into the argument, but I didn't want to. Uh, but, you know, someone asked the innocent question, are Mormons Christians? And you got all these so-called evangelicals saying, well, they are. Oh, no, they're not. They're not Christians. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the infallibility of the Bible. They say the Bible has mistakes and errors in it. We had some Mormon missionaries show up at Meet the Pastor one night. I said, look, either the Bible's true or the Book of Mormon is true. They both can't be right. I said, for instance, and I took their Book of Mormon. We went to the seventh chapter of the Book of Alma, and there's 17 books within the Book of Mormon, and it says here that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. And then I took him to the Bible, and uh, I took him to Micah chapter 5, and it prophesied that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And then I took him to the New Testament and said he was born in Bethlehem. They both can't be right. So I wouldn't be judging a Mormon who denies the deity of Christ, who denies the substitutionary atonement as a payment for sin, because they think good works help save. I wouldn't be calling a Mormon an unbeliever because he denies the doctrine of the Trinity. He denies the virgin birth as presented in Scripture because they say God the Father came down and had a relationship with Mary, and that's how he was conceived. This is just heresy upon heresy. That's a judgment Scripture would make for me. If you deny, say, the deity of Christ, Jesus said, unless you believe I am he, contextually God in human flesh, you'll die in your sin. So I would just gently say to my friend, look, I'm not judging you to say that you're not a Christian because your answer as to why God should let you into heaven was one of works. And based on what the Bible says, then the Scripture would say you're not a Christian. That's a judgment God has made. And again, sometimes if you sense that a person doesn't get that, you can go to some Scriptures that deal um, with justification by grace alone through faith alone. So this is a great question. Um, thank you for doing what you're doing. Keep at it. Don't give up. If you do it long enough and faithfully enough, you're going to see some people come into the kingdom. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Alberto from Savannah, Georgia is on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, I got a question. A lot of ministries claim they teach teach verse by verse and all that, or download their apps, but then when I click on their sermons, they might quote one or two verses, and they start rambling away, totally away from the actual verses or the verses they're supposed to cover. So what do you think about that? These ministers that claim they teach verse by verse, but when you listen to the sermons and stuff, they never actually cover nothing of the verses they're talking about that they're supposed to cover about. Uh, normally what folks would say is, uh, you know, come here for a Bible-based sermon or expository preaching, and they use some terms that maybe they're not really familiar with, like what really is expository preaching. Expository preaching is taking a text of Scripture and working through it phrase by phrase, verse by verse. It might be going through an entire book of the Bible or it might be that you are addressing a particular issue where you take a passage of Scripture, you put it in the context of which it's written, 
but then you work through that passage of Scripture verse by verse by verse. Now, the beauty of doing expository preaching through entire books of the Bible is you get to address the full counsel of Scripture. Uh, but sometimes there's an issue you want to address specifically. So um, though I just finished a series from a book of the Bible, uh, it was Easter, so I addressed some Easter issues, uh, Resurrection Sunday, Passover issues, and I'm getting ready to start a 15-week series. I think it's going to be 15 weeks anyway, as I kind of mapped it out, on God's prophetic schedule. One-third of the Scripture Approximately one-third is prophetic in nature. And so if a pastor doesn't teach Bible prophecy, is ignoring a major section of Scripture. It's found in virtually every book of the New Testament. Uh, scores of chapters in the Old Testament deal with it, especially in relationship to the second coming of Christ and his coming kingdom, not to mention the 300-plus prophecies that all dealt with the first coming of the Messiah. And so... When I do this series, it will still be expositional. So this week I'm going to do um, the rebirth of Israel and the rapture. Um, Then I'm going to do the war of Gog and Magog and the rise of Russia as this political entity. That's prophesied in Scripture. So we're going to deal with a number of specific prophetic issues in the calendar that God has outlined, but I will still do it verse by verse by verse. I might refer to several texts, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, but I will definitely go through a particular passage maybe that hones on the subject that is in front of us. So, um, you know, again, sometimes people say they do one thing, but they really don't, and expository preaching is often misunderstood. Some would say, well, if you aren't continually preaching through an entire book of the Bible, you're not preaching expositionally. That's not true either. Now, you can address a particular topic. Christ, during his public ministry, was asked specific questions, and he, he didn't say, well, let me preach the book of Genesis. No, he went to a particular section of Genesis, and he addressed the issues specifically. So that's what we're called to do. That's a lot of work, especially if you are preaching through a whole book of the Bible, because you can't skip anything, and, and it's easy to preach the easy sections Uh, And then there are some sections that are very challenging, and you have to work through them and think through what they are actually saying in their historical biblical context. And that's hard work. And that's why the apostle said in Acts 6, who were the first elders or pastors in the church, they were apostles, but they were also pastors, as 1 Peter chapter 5 teaches, as much as they would have liked to have waited on tables they said, we're going to devote ourselves to the ministry of the Word and to prayer, because that was a major focus of what a pastor does. Really, there's a three-pronged job description that a pastor is to emphasize in terms of his weekly schedule. One is prayer. One is the preparation of the Word so he can preach it accurately. And then the third is that of sharing his faith. A pastor may do a lot of other things, but those are three primary things that he's called to focus on. So all I would say to you is, you know, certainly if you have a relationship with the pastor, you might say, well, you say you preach verse by verse, but I've yet to hear a verse by verse sermon. Again, you don't accomplish anything by attacking him. And there are some men in the ministry today who are just doing everything they know how to do. And, you know, I, I went to um, 
the Ukraine several years ago. I've been to Ukraine dozens and dozens of dozens of times. We've built uh, five orphanages there, a Bible college, uh, started 13 churches where we, you know, were involved in outreach through vacation Bible school in towns where there was no known Christians. Uh, found a home in the center of town that we bought, turned it into a church, and we did 13 like that, uh, plus some traditional church buildings. So we've been very involved in the Ukraine. But one of the common questions was, well, how do you how do you preach expositionally? I said, you do it. You just, you just, and I said, okay, let's go to a passage. <clears throat> so um, let's take, for example, uh, First uh, Timothy chapter 5. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers. So I might say, well, let's just take this verse. What does it mean to sharply rebuke someone? Uh, let's ask some questions of the text. What is an older man? What is a younger man? Does the Bible give us any definitions of what an older man is? Is an older man someone who's 30 40, 50, 60. So you begin to work through it phrase by phrase. And then you, um, you know, create your sermon message around that very thing. So again, there are some people who are doing everything they know how to do. Uh, and sadly, if those men were not there, there wouldn't be any other men serving in the pulpit. 50,000 churches are in the process of closing here in the next couple of years in the United States. And uh, the that was the estimate that was given just prior to COVID in 2019 and a compelling article found in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, but now I'm afraid it's accelerating even more where these pastors are just holding on with their bare fingernails and there's seven in their church or eight and 10 and uh, they're barely able to keep the doors open. Anyway, let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, another anonymous listener has the following question. She writes, our church has voted nearly unanimously to leave the United Methodist uh, denomination due to all of the LGBTQ stuff and uh, changing of scripture coming from the United Methodists. Our preacher is not a normal United Methodist preacher. He does a good job. He is a very prayerful man and a man of God. Our church is filled with many on-fire godly people who truly live for the Lord. I grew up Baptist. My family and extended family attends a Baptist church in our hometown on Sunday nights and, and offers fantastic preaching. We study scripture ourselves and listen to Christian radio all of the time. So altogether, we are getting fed. Truly, as far as the total package and good preaching, I feel like the church we are currently attending is probably the best one around our fam- our community, even though it is Methodist. Our preacher will baptize by immersion if some people want that as well. Our family has been in this church for a long time. They're not opposed to leaving altogether, but we want to fight to get it right before throwing in the towel. This church has been a great church. If in the end this church is off, then we'll have to leave, but we want to try to get it right. All right, here's the crux of the problem. Our church is in the process of deciding whether to become independent, join another independent Methodist church, or join the global Methodist church. Can you tell me anything you know about the global Methodist church? We don't want to go this way, but some may. We have to make a presentation with the facts soon to explain to people why to join or not join this denomination, and maybe why not. 
uh, become independent Methodists. Do you know anything about the global Methodist background and their beliefs? Do you know anything about where the apportionments will go and where will the money given go to? Well, it's a good question, and um, I'm glad that your pastor is definitely committed to trying to teach the Word of God, uh, to preach it faithfully. Um, your, your church being engaged with United Methodists, I know for practical purposes, some would say, well, we don't really support the LGBTQ, transgender, homosexual you know, movement, but they do. Oh, they say, no, we don't. It was voted against at the last conference. The only reason it won was because of the Methodists who were engaged in the vote in Africa, and the Methodists in Africa outvoted the American church. But approximately 80% of American United Methodist churches are in favor of the LGBTQ plus uh, agenda. And really, a pastor who has any moxie should have left that decades ago because officially the United Methodist Church denies biblical inerrancy. So it was in the 1950s. I think it was 1952. I'd have to go back and look at my notes and my course on bibliology. They officially rejected the Bible as being the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And so there's not any United Methodist seminaries today that are faithful, that believe every single word of Holy Scripture is uh, God's infallible Word. And that's why they've got these debates that are unfolding in reference to, um, you know, the LGBTQ lifestyle. Does the Bible teach biblical separation? Certainly. And we're not talking about, you know, secondary or third issues that are not tests of conversion. But when we're dealing with critical issues, issues of morality, even gender uh, leadership. So the United Methodist Church has women pastors. And for all I know, you know, um, maybe that's something you're in favor of. I certainly hope not. Women play a very special role in the church, and they need to uh, be engaged in uh, the ministry that God has given them. But there's some things only men can do, some things only women can do. And so it's essential that we recognize uh, what the difference is. So, you know, biblical separation, Revelation 2, you know, Christ's message in 14 and 15, 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 4, Titus 3, 10 and 11, 2 Thessalonians three thirteen. Those are just a few passages that come to mind that teach the doctrine of biblical separation. Uh, if you go online to the Global Methodist Church, it says the Global Methodist Church, and they have these three rings uh, that overlap each other with a cross and a medical middle church's logo brings together its three circles, the one God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, we alone worship. The circles intersect at the center of the cross, the symbol of our deliverance from slavery to sin, fear, and death. The outer circumference of the rings represents the globe as a whole. The logo communicates God's sending of the church into the world. The sky blue color uh, reminds us <clears throat> that though global Methodists live all around the world, they are all united together in God's creation, great creation. Here's the problem, as I see it, with this particular agency. I'm glad that they want to wholeheartedly give themselves to the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. 
but when you are basically drawing from churches that are leaving the United Methodist Church, and again, I suppose if your church leaves, they'll leave the property behind them unless uh, they are willing, the local bishops and state-run authority, unless they are willing to work out some kind of an arrangement with you. And that's happened with a few Methodist churches uh, in the state. Um, But many of the churches are leaving their property behind because they do not want a Bible-believing congregation to use that property. So it just depends where you are, how it's expressed. The United Methodist Church is obviously in deep trouble. Uh, They are, for all practical purposes, endorsing the LGBTQ lifestyle. You have lesbian preachers in some United Methodist Church, homosexual pastors in other United Methodist Churches. You have the United Methodist Churches doing gay marriage in contradistinction to the Book of Discipline, where it spells out the biblical definition of marriage. The Book of Discipline is not necessarily a bad document. There's a lot of truth in it. I wouldn't agree with everything. I wouldn't agree with infant baptism. But still, with that said, overall, it's a good, solid document. The problem is it's not followed. And so they basically have turned their head the other way, and they're allowing evil to prosper. So from my perspective, if you've got churches that are leaving that to join the Global Methodist Church, the question that should be asked, why didn't they leave 30 years ago? Because back in the 1950s, biblical inerrancy was denied. You know, when you have you know, seminaries like Duke University in Emory, where you're training the next generation of United Methodist pastors that are totally apostate and have departed from the faith— Why didn't they leave decades ago? So it was either A, because of ignorance, or B, because of immaturity, which would tell me there is a gross lack of discernment, and it would tell me, too, that the prospects for this organization doing well is probably small. So my recommendation is I wouldn't go that way. I would become an autonomous church, or you mentioned this other church, hopefully I'm assuming conservative, I think you might be better off uh, launching with them. And if down the road you decide, hey, this organization has really stayed the course, they're doing what they desire to do, then you could join, and it becomes less of an issue. But I would probably become autonomous because, number one, that's really the picture in the New Testament. There's not a hierarchical structure above the New Testament. The only hierarchy above the New Testament was the apostles. So there's no apostolic succession. The only apostolic succession we have today is in the teaching of Holy Scripture. So in the New Testament, churches were autonomous, they're independent, but they're also interdependent and in that they cooperated with other Bible-believing Christians. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, William would like to know what happened to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah Were they judged then, or will they be judged at the great white throne judgment? Well, there's different kinds of judgment, William, that come uh, into the world. There is what we might call cataclysmic judgment, which would be like Noah's flood and the uh, days of Lot, where they were judged Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. Uh, There's uh, other kinds of disciplinary judgment that God brings on his people, 
or sometimes God will bring a small expression of judgment on unbelievers to protect his people. Many examples of that in the Old Testament. God still disciplines his people to this day. But judgment in reference to unbelievers, there's cataclysmic judgment, there's tribulation judgment that is still in front of us. Uh, That is going to happen during the seven-year tribulation period. It's the wrath of God on an unbelieving world, and it will be God's final wake-up call to get people to repent. We'll be addressing some of these issues in this new prophetic series that I'm beginning this Sunday. Uh, But then there's the great white throne judgment, and that doesn't happen until after the millennial reign of the Messiah. So the next great event is the rapture. After the rapture, it's probably a short period of time, but no one can say absolutely. But between the rapture and the signing of an agreement that the Antichrist will make, that will kick off a seven-year period. It will culminate with the second coming of Christ to the earth. Then he will reign for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, God will destroy the current heavens and earth, and the great white throne judgment will take place. As you study the great white throne judgment in Revelation twenty eleven to 15, the only people who are present are lost people. And God waits till the end of time to enact this judgment. Right now, if a lost man dies, he goes to what we would call unrighteous Sheol or unrighteous Hades. In the Old Testament, there are two compartments of Hades. There was righteous Hades or righteous Sheol. The Hebrew word Sheol is for the Greek translation Hades, and there's unrighteous Hades. We usually think of Hades just in terms of hell, and that would be true today, but it wasn't always true. And so a lost man today is an unrighteous Hades. It's not until the end of time before God, just before God creates a new heaven and a new earth, that the great white throne judgment will take place, and all the unrighteous of all time, including all the people in Sodom, all the people from all the nations of the world will be brought before the Lord. And God waits till that time, and for good reason. You know, you Hefner hasn't been judged beyond the fact that right now he's in Hades as a Christ-rejecting unbeliever who lived a life of licentiousness. But God hasn't given the final judgment on a you Hefner yet. Why? Because the works of you Hefner are still unfolding. He left behind him all kinds of wickedness that is still seeding into the hearts of men, and he will give an account for every unrighteous deed that he seeded or directly did. So God waits to the very end of time. So all the Sodomites experience was cataclysmic judgment that put them in unrighteous Hades, but then at the end of the time, they will meet God at the great white throne judgment where all the lost of all time are brought together, and then their final declaration of judgment is given according to their works, because their works, one, will prove that they're lost, and two, their works will, uh, hell will be met out according to works. It's awful for anyone who goes, but not the same for everyone who goes. All right. I think we've got time for one more call. An anonymous caller says their friend went to a Seventh-day Adventist service and heard about the serpentine prophecy and told our caller about it. What do you know about that prophecy, and what are your thoughts on the Seventh-day Adventists? Well, it's somewhat of an armchair question, so let me just um, respond. Seventh-day Adventists look differently in different parts of the world. If you go into Eastern Europe, countries like the Ukraine, 
they don't even consider Seventh-day Adventist believers. They, they just say they're a cult, they're all lost, they're damned. And in one sense, that's true in the Ukraine, like we could say it's true of a Mormon, because their doctrine is so grossly in error, they do not have the essentials to be considered born-again Christians. You can be wrong in a lot of things, but you can't be wrong in the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the implications that it has for conversion. In the United States, Seventh-day Adventists are a little bit different. Now, there was a book that was written some years ago called The Kingdom of the Cults, and it was a classic work that was done. Um, It has been updated and is still available. I would get the older edition. I think it's the best. The Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. If you Google it, you could probably find it for $2 plus shipping. Though if you buy it new, it would be, you know, $50. Uh, He includes in that book, Seventh-day Adventists, with a qualifier. He would say, though, technically, I do not believe that they are a cult in the sense that someone could be a Seventh-day Adventist and still be saved, but they have so many erroneous doctrines that they teach, I'm going to include them in this presentation. And what he does is he actually quotes from their documents, Ellen G. White's own words, um, different books that they have written, and he puts it side by side with the Bible. And so that's good. You're not just getting what people say Seventh-day Adventists believe, but what they actually teach. Ellen G. White, for instance, taught that Jesus had a sin nature, but he just never sinned, but he had a sin nature. Well, that's gross heresy. Jesus didn't have a sin nature. When we speak of the Immaculate Conception as evangelicals, we're not speaking about Mary, we're speaking about Jesus that he was immaculately conceived. Why? Because he didn't have a human father. And so it's not even logical, certainly not biblical, the conclusion that she came up with. She had all kinds of visions and experiences, and most cults are built on some extra revelation beyond the Holy Scripture. So my short answer would be, get the Kingdom of the Cults by Dr. Walter Martin. It's still a classic work on dealing with what Adventists really believe and what the Bible says. I would not recommend anyone to go to a Seventh-day Adventist church. There's just too much gross error, and we could spell it out for the next 30 minutes and not even get close to finishing. But we are finished with the Bible line for this day. So glad you can join us. I hope you will walk with Jesus Christ and honor Him as Lord.